Welcome to Aim in Practice, where we talk about life as a practitioner, wellness in general, and what it means to practice. My name is Jess Reynolds, and I'm your host, and today I talk with my friend Jason. Now, Jason is a massage therapist as well as an osteopath, and he has a keen interest in natural foot health. So we talk a lot about the transition from normal running shoes to minimalist running shoes. We talk about the history of footwear and where it came from and why we're actually in this world today where so many people have foot and ankle issues. We even dip a little bit into treatment protocols as well as home care protocols. So this is a really fun conversation. I rarely get the opportunity to talk to anybody who is obsessed with the ankle and foot as I am. So it was a great chat and enjoy. All right, well, with that, we might as well start. So Jason, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Yeah, let's uh, let's start about talking about you. Um, so what, what actually got you into massage? In fact, maybe what did you do before you got into massage? Uh, I'm actually quite young to be in the field, I feel. I feel that it is one of those big turning points where you get a lot of adult education to massage therapy. So I actually took a gap year after high school, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I, the classic, you know, doctor, too too long, uh, too much money, where do you go, where do you do it? Uh, I really ended up liking muscles in uh, in high school. I really clung on to the sports medicine class and uh, kind of taping and a lot of that. I knew I liked muscles, and it was actually my dad, I believe, who and I thank my parents every day for where I am. Like I have, like I consider mm. all my success my parents. I, I love my parents so much, and so I think it was my dad who mentioned, hey, "Well, hey, what about massage?" So we ended up going to check it out and I gave it a try and I've been liking it ever since. I, I usually joke with people that my uh, despise of numbers and math got me into massage as well. Not a math guy. I was just yeah. like, oh, where can you go if you didn't have this? And yeah, I, was, yeah. like, I, think, I feel like that's a lot of people's uh, story as well. Not math in high school, not their mm-hmm. strong suit. <laughs> And it's kind of interesting too, right? Because if you are interested in the health sciences and there are certain aspects of, of a typical curriculum you don't like, such as math, you're left with very few choices. But fortunately, the choices that you are left with, they're, they're pretty awesome. Like it's it's so cool that a person can go through two years of education in Canada or in the States, it's like 600 hours and you can come out with a career in the wellness industry. Like that's super cool. Well, unspecializing, and we were talking earlier about passion and I think that's good instead of if math's not even your strong suit, if a lot of times you won't even study math, depending on what program you want to get into in major universities and stuff, mm-hmm. but they, it's just competitive. So you still need that math. Right. So yeah. they're not even that <laughs> is, yeah, but I really liked that. Uh, you can, they specialize in it mm-hmm. and it was nice. Yeah, it was fun. All right. So you got into massage pretty early on, right? Like just a year after high school or so. And it's been pretty much your life ever since from what I understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I had a great instructor. Oh yeah. Tell me about him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a lot of the stuff that I, I kind of, I kind of fell in love with the craft because of, uh, passion. And if you have a good instructor that Mm -hmm. has that passion, it kind of bestow upon me. So I luckily took a lot of notes during class and I feel obviously you have to tone your studies down to what the content is you're learning at the time. But afterwards when I was able to go back into my notes, Mm. I saw a lot of, Oh, Oh, Wim Hof stuff. Let's look into that now that I don't have exams coming up. Yeah, right. <laughs> hmm, minimalist footwear. Let's look into that now that I have have some time to play around. Yeah. So yeah, after uh, like I said, <clears throat> I always joke with students that learning becomes a lot more fun when you're not getting quizzed on it. Mm-hmm. So you could branch out and you could do all that stuff and expand your scope and 
Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's an interesting thing because I have spent so many years of my, my professional career teaching in colleges and the attitude of students in school, it's, it's exhausting. Like there's a good reason I'm not doing it anymore. It's just, it wipes an instructor out. There's, there's a few of them that can maintain it, but teaching continuing education, that is so much more engaging because the people who are attending these CE workshops, they really want to be there, right? And they're pursuing some avenue of passion or at the, at the very least an area that they're really interested in. And, and so you you teach a bit now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that. What What's it been like kind of switching from student to practitioner now going more into the teacher role? Uh Interesting to say the least. Um, looking into some of your content, and I was looking at some of your pressed, uh, your past podcasts and things as well. Uh, I understand where you're coming from, and, and like you said, it sounds horrible that like treating sick people and stuff. Yeah. But a lot of the time, yeah, like some people aren't willing to uh, do certain things to assist their health. They've mm-hmm. say they've tried everything and all this. Uh, I really like this one quote that I've heard is like, you get paid to treat people ultimately, and you don't get paid to make people healthy. Mm-hmm. And that really mm-hmm. stuck with me. And it's kind of like, hmm, interesting. So, I mean, I started um, getting into in teaching shortly after. So it's not like I really got burnt out of that yeah. before I started teaching. I did feel like I just had a passion of this and I liked learning. And a lot of people who always say that this field's a, uh, a lifestyle it really is. I just kind of dove into it and I liked doing this stuff. So instead of uh, watching certain videos and certain content of like humor and things like that, I was kind of found myself going home and watching uh, massage this, expanding my practice and mm-hmm. doing that. Uh, I eventually, I, I just realized I didn't bring it up in my introduction. I shortly went into uh, manual osteopathy after as right, well. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I was diving into that a little bit just because I was kind of hungry. I was hungry for knowledge and mm-hmm. information. So how did that how did that change your massage practice right cuz when when you go through manual osteopathy it's Almost everybody I know who has done that started out as a massage therapist or they supplement their massage therapy with manual osteopathy. How has that education shifted your career your focus or added to it? What was that like? Um, it was interesting to say the least before I actually got into it. Uh, I started, they always say like, you know, like, Oh, go and shadow some people who do this. See if you kind of like what they do sort of thing. And I didn't do that too much, but, uh, the few people I did started seeing them do osteo techniques on it. it I mean, I want to say similar to TCM and acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine. The scope is just so weird. So the scope for manual osteopathy honestly isn't too different from, massage almost everything you can do in that like because we're not doing um high velocity low amplitude adjustments we're Mm -hmm. not allowed it's not within our scope we can't do uh acupuncture so a lot of the things is a mainly kind of muscle energy techniques and kind of like the way i always describe it is yes we deal with spinal alignment but it's more so trying to get that person to engage the uh, their muscle on that area of the spine to bring their own spine into alignment then uh, us forcing it kind of like a Cairo, uh, more or less. So yeah, honestly it it changed it because I realized how you think, you know, something. And when you were teaching, you get really confident in certain classes. Right. But then you start doing this and you're like, wow, I know nothing. And I, and I love that kind of little humbling moments Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. kind of realize it's like, Hmm, yeah, I was getting, I need to humble myself a little bit. There's getting a little cocky. Yeah. There's an interesting combination of things that you were just talking about. Like on one hand, when you go through the manual osteopathy school, 
you were talking about how you're learning techniques to sort of get people's spine back into the place where they can start to do the work to get it there. But reflecting on that quote that you said at the same time, like our job is to treat people, not help them be healthy. Like those kind of seem at odds, right? Isn't that an interesting thing that that us as practitioners, what we really want is to help people get healthy. Well, my, my, my opinion is on this that uh, there's a guy named Chris Kresser, and he's really popular in the functional medicine world, right? And he talks about the difference between healthcare and sick care. And our current medicine model is based around sick care. And unfortunately, that's starting to include more and more CAM, like complementary alternative medicine modalities, that we now are focusing more on sick care. And I think it has to do with the mentality of our clients. Like, they're just so used to being sick and having somebody just treat their sickness but not really contribute to to the health aspect so in your your practice what do you find like personally when you're treating people do you help them get healthy or do you focus more on just giving them treatment make them feel better for a week like what's what's your practice really like i like to classify my form of treatment as orthopedic uh, so I, I'm not really huge on the sports massage aspect. Uh, I'm not really huge on the Swedish relaxation sort of uh, spa-like treatments. I do still believe that the best massages have that Swedish aspect, but I do like people trying to figure out their pain. However, it really depends. You have to read the room, and that's why I kind of liked um, that massage does touch on a little bit of psychology and trying to get behind mm -hmm. this is because you kind of need to uh, read the room. How is this person? Do it during that little interview. What kind of person is this? Are they going to be able to kind of change some things? Are they not? Like, what What? Like, what mm -hmm. are you willing to do? What are you willing to drop to kind of do right. this? Yeah. And I, I kind of understanding that, it's like, does this person, are they just using up their insurance benefits? Are they, are they just here to feel good? Yeah. Or do they, are they trying to get to the bottom of this? Like, what is their goal? Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of RMTs, I feel, don't look into that goal. Why are they here? What is their goal? Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the times will kind of shift my, okay, do I really need to get nerdy here? Mm -hmm. Do we really need to like dive into gate and all this stuff? Like, yeah. like what did you, how can we get to the bottom of this? So the effort they put in, I try and put in and more almost, but if they don't want to put in much effort, that's okay as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to continuing education, even though it doesn't qualify as a proper CE course for massage therapists, I think one of the best trainings a uh, massage therapist or, or uh, osteopath, anything uh, anybody could do is a coaching course because it really is about motivation when, we're, when we are more inclined to work with people dealing with injuries and who are coming to us in, in serious pain, right? Like how do we help motivate them? And you said setting goals, right? And, and what I find interesting about that is, is ask a client like, so, so what's, what's the goal? What's the outcome you're looking for? And they're like, oh, I want my shoulder to stop hurting. And I, I, you know, like you remember if you're in school, I'd always ask why. It's like, well, why? Why do you want your shoulder to stop hurting? Because like, who cares if your shoulder hurts? And it's like, well, I want it to stop hurting because pain sucks. It's like, obviously pain sucks. Let's keep digging. And inevitably, whenever somebody comes in for pain and they want the pain to go away, if you keep asking these whys, you get to like this root goal. And it's like, God, I just, I just want to be able to play with my grandkids, right? And I personally found that by doing this inquiry and kind of like taking a step more into this coach role, you know, without crossing any professional boundaries, that's really helpful in getting to this, this motivation of actually helping them get healthy as opposed to just treating some problem and maybe it gets better, maybe it doesn't, right? Speaking of, congrats, did you did your elements of health just start the other day? Yeah, it did. Congrats. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's going pretty good. It's it's a perfectly small group. I like it that way. That's what I wanted it to mm -hmm. be. And yeah, we uh, we started the first one 
on Sunday, and then we're doing one every every week, and it's it's a it's a really enjoyable process. Yeah. Uh, I technically again more things I've realizing I'm missing in my uh, intro. I am uh, foot nerd with the Foot Collective. Yeah. They're based out in Toronto, yep. and uh, I took their program, and they had very similar. They called them pillars of health, but mm-hmm. they're all very similar along the lines of like sleep, movement, nutrition, and everything. Yeah. Ours were sleep, mind, community, mm-hmm. movement, and food. Same thing. Pretty similar. It's like basically, and, and you know when and I was... And that helped me so much, yeah. that program. So like I said, I, I was I was close to sign up for Elements of Health, but mm-hmm. it's not a very good time uh, currently for me. But it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like I know people get a lot of the program like this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really, really interesting. And, and like these these elements, I almost call them pillars, right? It's like, but, um, but whenever you kind of go beyond the basic stuff that we learn in, in sort of the, the body work world is that's it. It boils down to a very limited number of things a person can actually do to make themselves better. And what I found so fascinating about these conversations, and maybe it's a spoiler to when we get to the end, but I find it so curious how when we talk about being a good practitioner, like what makes a really good practitioner, I have yet to have anybody say hands-on skills. Right. Like I've never had any practitioner say, well, to be good at, you know, needing. No, no, Mm -hmm. that's it. It's almost always... I take care of myself and, and I've got a good, strong foundation, mm-hmm. right? So, so I mean, we might as well jump into that. I really want to get into the foot stuff, but mm-hmm. before we do, like, let's talk a little bit about your opinion about really what makes a good practitioner. What do you think? So I know this was your going question mm-hmm. um, and like, hence the aim in practice. So yeah. I, I was really kind of, uh, I took some time and I was thinking, yeah, what does it mean to be a practitioner? And of course, like the obvious answer is, oh, you know, like you practice medicine, you're in practice and you can kind of narrow that down to, uh, oh, you know, I am still a learner. I'm practicing and stuff. And ultimately what kind of, I heard a story a while ago and it really resonated with me. And a lot of the times how I kind of relate this is it's called like the black belt story. It was something like that about someone in karate getting, uh, they're a martial artist. And, Basically, uh, it was years of relentless training and uh, this student finally was going up to be graduating to a black belt. But uh, like the sensei, the master kind of says, so like before I award you this black belt, I need you to answer an essential question. What is the true meaning of the black belt? And at first he's kind of like, well, it's the end of my journey. Like it's a well-deserved reward for my hard work. And the master just kind of like, "Mm," he wasn't satisfied. So he said, return in one year and try again for the black belt. So a year more of hard training, he finally came back. And thus, since I asked him the same question and this time the student answered, it's a symbol of uh, distinction and it's the highest achievement in our art. And again, the master just wasn't very satisfied. He left. He said, return in one more year and try for this black belt again. So another year of hard training and he finally comes to the uh, sensei again, and he asks him the same question. But this time he asks, oh, sorry, this time he answers that the black belt represents not the end, but the beginning, mm. the start of a never-ending journey of discipline, work, and a pursuit of a higher standard. And that just really stuck with me. As again, like a practitioner practices, you should always be learning. Right. And you should, like I said, me going into Austria and realizing, wow, I know nothing. I thought I did, but I can start incorporating this and that's a better way to treat this. Mm-hmm. And I just like that attitude of trying to humble yourself and not to go uh, a lot of times, even in the um, chiropractic. Uh, I heard something very funny is like a lot of chiropractors get that Tony Stark Iron Man 
vibe and it was just oh i couldn't unsee it i was like oh, no kidding yeah a lot of a lot of them have that iron man kind of vibe it's hilarious but they kind of get cocky you know mm-hmm. oh they're healing people with their hands and one thing i really like from osteo is what they're always saying is we facilitate healing right we're not healing we are putting your body in the place to heal yourself sort of a thing mm-hmm. so uh, again a, a, a simple question and a not so simple answer but yeah kind of always that drive that drive to always want more sort of a thing i kind of mm-hmm. like yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm glad you gave an answer that was quite explanatory because I'm so curious about people's perception of what it means. And I think a lot of people don't consider the fact like that is what we do. We are practitioners and built right into that word is practice. So defining that, I think is a super important part for each practitioner to really do, because if not, then you stop practicing, right? Then you think I've graduated and that is the end. And next thing you know, it's three years later and you're burnt out and bored and you've wasted, you know, however many years in school and however many years practicing. So no, I really, really appreciate that. That's a great story. I'm probably going to steal it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I said, I love it. I stole it from somewhere. I forget yeah. where, but yeah, I, I do feel too many therapists get on autopilot mode mm-hmm. and it drives me in, um, up the wall like it's a shame but they're not listening to goals they just kind of they get in their flow most people maybe want mm-hmm. back and neck they just get into that flow and yeah, yeah. oh this person actually wants that done but they kind of just in one ear out the other they just get in their flow like they're mm-hmm. doing their thing instead of the thing for the client or oh, patient totally. so yeah 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 cool well i certainly appreciate that answer and usually i save that for the end but it seemed like a good place to, to go into that mm-hmm. and and it's probably for the best because I I would like to now kind of shift our conversation into this sort of mutual passion that you and I share, which is talking about foot and ankle health, right? Uh, so to start with, why do you care about it? I mean, I've got my own story behind it, but why, why do you care about foot and ankle health? Like, what's interesting about it? Your story is a lot more passionate and better than mine. But, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, ultimately it rooted down. Uh, I had a good instructor and that's where I kind of first heard about it. Uh, I learned about the four s's mm-hmm. and if i was learned to that you conquer these four s's that you'll live yeah. a healthy life yeah and it it is so true um one being stress two mm-hmm. being sitting mm-hmm. three being shoes and four being sugar yeah and uh, like i said it really hit the nail on the on the head uh a lot of those i've dove into from my uh foot collective program but yeah anyway before that happened uh that's where i first learned about it mm-hmm. in minimalist shoes and uh again not too into it after i had to graduate finish worry about finals first then i was able to get more into this and i forget what made me make the i think it was like a kajiji or facebook marketplace thing i found one of those like uh the five fingers not to the the vibram not mm-hmm. the vibram five fingers it was a technically an adidas like rip off of them okay I forget the exact name, um, regardless, uh, I got those to try them and cause I was worried about the five finger models because I was like more friction, more, more surface area covering all the toes. I was yeah. like, is it going to suit? I have a very wide forefoot, so it's mm-hmm. already hard for me to find shoes. So I started trying those and I was like, okay, like, but I realized it's Adidas. It's a major, uh, normal shoe brown brand. So they had uh, a very firm sole still. Mm-hmm. So not uh, quite the meeting the standards of what we would call like a minimalist or natural shoe. So then I got the Merrill Vapor Glove 4. Mm-hmm. It was a shoe and that's kind of truly, it is still a little skinny, I would say, but that was my, I would consider my first minimalist shoe. Mm-hmm. I just got it again. I'm not sure why, but I just got it. And the story I always tell people is as I was walking, uh, I started going on walks because they say the transition period for these is a little strange. And I didn't understand this yet. I'm still new into this. So mm-hmm. I started wearing the shoe on a couple of walks. And I was just like, 
these do not breathe. They, my feet are so warm. What is going on? So I, I went on a few walks and it's just like, oh my gosh, do I have to return these? Like, what's going on? But then one walk, there was a gust of wind that went right through the shoe. And I was like, wait a second. These can breathe. <laughs> so I was like, wait, what's going on? So And then I think this started my hunger of more knowledge and I kind of started like of this conspiracy theory of minimal <laughs> shoes. It's like, oh, what's going on? And then I, it came down to my foot muscles were working for the first time since I was born. Mm-hmm. And, and like other than going barefoot and stuff, like actually going on walks and on cement and stuff, I was like, wow. So it makes sense. There's there's muscles in our feet mm-hmm. and it's so complex. There's so many muscles in the feet and it's so hard to mimic that in uh, like amputees. It's so hard to m- replicate a foot because yeah. uh, like Leonardo da Vinci himself says that the, the foot is like uh, a masterpiece of engineering and a work of art. Mm-hmm. And it truly is like, mm-hmm. it's just so great. So I started going more and more into it and it started this spiral of like more and more content. And then yeah, I yeah. got introduced to the foot collective and decided to take that and learn more and more and, that's super awesome. You know, and just backtrack, those, those four S's, that turned into the, the elements. The same thing. Right. Just same. But anyways, um, no, I find, it, I find it interesting when people do get into this and what I appreciate about the, when you said there's a, there's a break-in period. I, I worked at uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, so this big outdoor store, right? And this was when I was still in school. I hadn't, I didn't care about foot and ankle health, right? Same thing. Um, but uh, when I was working there, the returns would have, and I'm not exaggerating, they have buckets upon buckets of these minimal footwear uh, shoes that were returned. And I would always ask, like, why do we have so many? I mean, honestly, hundreds of them returned. And it's because people kept hurting themselves over and over again. Or they'd say, like, I bought these because it was supposed to help my feet. And, you know, but, but they but ended up on their normal 5K. Yeah, or yeah exactly. 10K. Yeah. And they got foot pain and, you know, like a torn gastroc. And that, I think that's that's something that that is under discussed about this transition into more minimal footwear is the, the break-in period not for the shoes but for your feet it's it's like years in my opinion i think two years two years that's that's a good start yeah yeah about two years yeah all right so you got interested in it, you went down the deep end uh so we'll talk about how, how you use that in your practice and what you do with that to share that knowledge but i want to know a little bit more about that experience when it came to going from just normal, everyday, typical sneakers and footwear to transitioning now into what I'm assuming is pretty much exclusively minimal footwear. It is. Uh, it's a big jump. Mm. And uh, I was a big question I had to ask myself and trying to humble myself and make sure when I'm trying to, I don't really try and convince people to wear these. I just kind of like bringing up the facts and kind of letting people almost come to the conclusion themselves. I think it's one of those things where they kind of need to come to it themselves. So I usually just kind of start nerding out and talking about this stuff because like i said it was just this one of my biggest light bulb moments uh personally so uh but so just so everyone usually knows um like for what is a minimal shoe if you've never even heard of it before Mm -hmm. you can keep going uh i usually like the mnemonic um wtff so you can kind of like uh it's kind of funny. It's kind of like the, oh, what the, what the heck footwear? <laughs> so you can kind of hopefully remember it. Uh, I usually like breaking it down into wide or foot-shaped, mm-hmm. uh, thin sole, flat or zero drop, a lot of people call it, and flexible. Mm-hmm. So WTFF. So uh, you want it to be like foot-shaped. It needs to be thin so you can feel the ground more or less. To, uh, a lot. Of, some people are saying you can have it a little bit thicker, and that's where some shoe brands will do that are still fitting the other uh, principles. Mm-hmm. But uh, you want it flat and zero drop, and we can talk about those more if we'd like later. But a lot of shoes don't do that. And 
it made sense. And like I said, this started that rabbit hole of things of just kind of realizing it's like, wait a second, like, why don't other shoes do this and things? And But there's like, what, like, and I just started nerding out so much. It came to the point where I was like, okay, I think I need to make that jump. Like, like, uh, it was actually an event. It was like a, a suit and tie event I went to and I wore normal dress shoes for the first time in a while. I forget how long I was into minimal shoes at this point, but remarkably not feet not these low back mm -hmm. my low back was killing me that night because of just how your body stands i mean stilettos are the same way when you stand it just goes up the chain mm -hmm. it's crazy so like i was like wow uh just this like maybe two inch uh lift under my heels i'm feeling this in my low back and i'm suffering it's like i can't like poor women yeah. <laughs> and all, i was looking around just like well, how is everyone else doing it so like i said yeah it was funny but yeah. that's kind of what was like i think that was like the okay why I can still try and find some of these that look good for these events mm -hmm. while still so, and ultimately it is funny, but I let it develop me and I embraced it. And like I said, a lot of people, especially women, unfortunately, I would say don't like that. Well, the high heels look good. Mm -hmm. It goes with my outfit. It's hard. I'll get judged all of this stuff. Yeah. Men too. But, uh, I kind of realized it's like, you know what, if I can just be that quirky foot dude mm -hmm. and which i am at almost all my jobs now it's just hilarious like i just try and embrace it and let it show my character and yeah. things it's like i'm that quirky foot natural foot guy so um because of that i just let it like that i associate with me now mm -hmm. and that helped i think too it's just like oh yeah that's jason he's wearing it like oh what shoes are you wearing today jason right so i think that helped and like i've said eventually i just made the jump but it's hard how much money have you put into your whole shoe collection yeah. and to the, can completely swap so it's difficult for mm -hmm. a lot of people yeah and i i think an important thing to consider also is the fashion aspect of it like there are going to be times in which you have to wear the the classic footwear dress shoes things like that and there are more and more brands that are making really good looking minimal footwear but for a long time like when i first got into it there there were two options uh, basically one there is the the vibrams right that was it that was all there was so now it's really cool that there's a bunch of different companies out there that are, are providing a wide range of them now, when you went through that process and you started shifting more and more into it, what were some things that you noticed as far as, as let's not even talk about your foot. Let's just talk about your movement patterns in general, because I, I think that that's one of the, the, the coolest things about switching to a minimal footwear is how the entire body moves differently. Did you find something similar? I... I played football in high school and uh, it was kind of that joke, you know, a lot of young men is, uh, oh, no cardio, just just weight sort of yeah. thing. <clears throat> so uh, what I kind of found is once I got into that, a lot of things started to shift. <clears throat> and this is where I feel your elements of health come into play as well, because the levels of these things, if you can get a better sleep, then you might feel like moving more that day. And mm -hmm. if you can feel like moving more. So I started getting into running while I was doing this as well. I wasn't, I ran a little bit, but I realized how differently you run walking. Mm -hmm. the, the walking pattern kind of stays similar ish yeah. walking, but running completely different with uh normal or sorry, with minimalist or uh, natural footwear. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a good picture I usually like showing people, but basically a lot of like normal shoes with that uh, thicker padding under the heel, you usually end up landing on your heel. Yep. Running, and you're not supposed to do that. There's lots of studies done. Well, lots. 
if there was lots, maybe a lot more people would be trying mm -hmm. minimal footwear. There was a study done kind of on like um, hard surfaces and running yeah. and um, whether you're landing on your forefoot or your heel. And if you land on your heel, despite the padding under that heel, those that ground force reaction, it just shakes up your bones, up mm -hmm. your whole chain. So it's just terrible for you. But it's hard to land on your, your metatarsal. So in, in normal shoes, instead of where normal shoes you land on your heel minimalist footwear you start to run and land on like kind of like the base of your fifth metatarsal mm -hmm. a little bit more and then you roll down that lateral longitudinal arch and then kind of uh the base of the first kind of touches down then your heel just gently yeah. kisses the ground yeah. <laughs> before you propel forward and test for that yeah. big toe and stuff too and like again just kind of learning about this and realizing i usually like telling people like if you took your shoes off right now and just went for a run. You will run differently. Your body kind of adapts. Mm -hmm. And it was that thinking about it. The more you think about it, the more injuries that might. It's like, oh, I, I got to run like this. If, if you, So if you know that this gait, your gait changes when running, I, I found the more I thought about it, trying to change my gait from normal shoes, some problems would almost start. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm just thinking, I just need to run. I just need to let myself do maybe yeah. some strengthening exercises. Yeah. But yeah, I think some of that repatterning is important, right? Particularly in the beginning. What I found interesting about my journey into minimal footwear is, is I started that process prior to my ankle injury and I did a fair bit of running. That's actually why I fell in love with running is, is shifting to minimal footwear because once my body adapted to it, it was like the greatest sense of freedom I think I've ever had, you know, just to be able to put basically nothing on your feet and run and run and run. And it's like, it's like your body. Well, I mean, I think we know pretty conclusively the human body is built for it, right? Uh, so that was the first part of my process and I and absolutely loved it. But then of course I, I got in a really bad accident, injured my foot and I couldn't wear minimal footwear. I flat out couldn't do it without crippling pain, but I still wanted to run. So I had to find this balance between having just, just enough heel uh, cushion on my right foot in particular in order to let me run. But through the process, I started with maybe a one inch heel. And then from there, I went down to maybe a half an inch. And then now I'm getting more and more back. But that process of recovering from an injury and going back into minimal footwear as a person who was already well adapted to it, that's ooh, six years, six years for my, my body to recover from. Mind you, I mean, you know the story. I'm not sure if everybody does, but it was it was a significant injury. No question. Nevertheless, it's so cool to see how the body can adapt given patience, given time, and given a bit of knowledge, like knowing that, actually, knowing what is my question, I want to ask you that question about the heel. Why? Why are they there? Who put these, these heel drops in our running shoes in the first place, and why did they do it? Uh, I've, I, it's so funny because I think you told me this story at first as well and kind of like learning about shoes and things. And it's a shame because unfortunately what I established is that footwear companies don't have your health in mind. Mm -hmm. They have money in mind. And this no. is kind of what started. A company <laughs> with just money in mind? This is what started the rabbit hole of like learning more and more into this. Like, oh, so yeah, a lot of modern shoes are not built for human feet because, um, I think, I, I, don't quote me, what I found is that in 2017, in the U.S. alone, athletic footwear was a $17 billion market. Mm -hmm. It is insanity. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that happens. Uh, uh, basically, uh, the question I usually like to ask myself this when I got into this is like, why do we have shoes? Mm -hmm. Like, like what, what is the point? And you, so you kind of have to ask yourself... 
And I'll ask other people this, and the answers I usually get is A, to protect from cold, mm-hmm. or like the elements, uh, to perfect, uh, protect yourself from sharp or harmful objects, uh, and fashion. Mm-hmm. Some honorable mentions like grip and steel toes might protect you with certain jobs and stuff right. as well. Fair enough. So, so those are know, the, all of those are good points. They're uh, all good points. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But. <laughs> but. Uh, so yeah, uh, again, some history is... I think Homo erectus was the first one to kind of... They, they found the oldest shoe they have is about 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was found in Fort Rock, Oregon. And it was basically just like sagebrook bark sort of a thing. Uh, it was really interesting. Uh, most footwear before that, obviously there's older. It's not saying that was the first shoe ever made, but it was more like perishable. So like leather and things that we can't fossilize mm-hmm. as well and stuff. So that was like the first one we found. And then... Uh, flashing forward in history a little bit, going into like Egypt, and uh, a lot of the times, this is where, and some of the arguments that I'll get, sorry, I'm kind of bouncing all no, over the place. No, keep going. You're nailing uh, it. One of the arguments that a lot of people come to me is just like, well, when was, like, uh, he, like yeah, humans are born to run. There's that famous book and everything, mm-hmm. but it's like, but were they born to run on these hard concrete surfaces, they That's would a good say. question. <laughs> so, um, and it is interesting, because, uh, yeah, in Egypt, not a lot of people wore shoes. In, uh, in like, ancient Egypt, it was more so, like, uh, a status icon, more so, like, the, the very, like, royalty would. And what's interesting is that if you go to uh, a specific website, uh, it's literally called Understanding Cement, it's basically a whole website. They've devoted their craft to learning about the history and the um, uh, art of like cement building. And they do mention that ancient Egyptians used something called a calcing gypsum as a cement. So uh, whether that was just for pyramids, who knows and stuff, but a lot of the times they probably build roads, maybe for mm-hmm. carriages and stuff. So it was probably a thing back then. And we were probably running still in ancient G- Egypt. So again, and but that will also translate as to how the, uh, the triceps array, your soleus gastrox will help mm-hmm. uh, eccentrically load you into running and stuff. And it doesn't matter on how hard the surface if you're using your body correctly. But that's a whole other talk, I would say. Uh, and then, yeah. So then what kind of started happening is uh, vulcanized rubber, mm-hmm. which is basically the process of um, hardening uh, rubber. So we're going from ancient Egypt to rubber. What's the timeline here? Um, basically, uh, I think rubber shoe soles were added at the bottom of leather shoes at 1832-ish. Okay, so basically yesterday. And then, <laughs> and then, so a long time ago, long time ago. <laughs> and then, uh, 1886, vulcanized rubber was introduced. Mm-hmm. And then Keds actually took opportunity of that first. I think Keds were introduced in 1916 mm. by the manufacturer Goodyear. Uh, and that was when they were first, start, first started advertising as sneakers. And the stories because they were more quiet. People were running around in like dress shoes and things before and uh, other things. So cool. before that softened the rubber, it was uh, loud to walk around. So they kind of advertised it as sneakers because it was quieter to walk around. Then uh, in 1895, Fosters and Sons, which is now actually Reebok, uh, introduced spikes into the bottom of their shoes for like running shoes. So that was kind of like what some people call like the first running shoe, 1895-ish. And then the father of modern running shoes gets introduced, uh, Mr. Adolf or Addy Dazzler. Uh, he introduced the first custom running shoe, kind of having those spike patterns similar to Reebok. Uh, but uh, it was kind of made for like, uh, there's different versions for like um, sprinting or long distance running because they were like kind of more custom. 
So he saw an opportunity at the International uh, Olympics in 1936, it was, Mm -hmm. uh, Berlin. So he got an athlete called uh, Jesse Owens, and uh, he was an American track and field star. He got him to wear his shoes, and they had the iconic two leather stripes on the side. So hence kind of um, Addy Dazzler. Mm -hmm. I think we all see where this is going. (laughs) Eventually kind of uh, what turned into Addy Daz. And uh, what's funny is that he had a brother as well, uh, Rudolf Dazzler, and he eventually formed Puma too. Mm. Fun fact. Uh, but then, yeah, so of course the Olympics kind of blew that up and more and more people started wearing this, these. Um, so yeah, then jump forward more and more is the thing that kind of stayed the same is fashion. From ancient Egypt, a lot of it's a status thing. Mm-hmm. If you put a huge heel lift in your um, shoe, you look taller. Uh, when you're taller, you can appear more dominant. And just from like a genetic um, standpoint of that is mm-hmm. you're more dominant. You can get maybe what you want more if you have that intimidation factor almost. Uh, so a lot of fashion, a lot of, oh, the, it's soft. It's a sneaker, right? It must be good for my feet. And they started advertising all this. Mm-hmm. But then what's interesting is the injuries start rolling in, yeah. I think. And a lot of people don't really either want to hear this and things. But um, to my knowledge, shin splints was first described in 1958. And that was kind of around the time some of this stuff was happening. More and more people who were maybe wearing these in the thicker. And they kind of thought, right, if I can appear taller... I can maybe be getting away with this and that, but then they start running and trying to do other athletic things and that. So, but because the money was there and the fashion was there, they keep producing these things, trying to tell you that it's for your health and it's for this. And that's kind of where orthotics yeah. kind of come into play as well. But then uh, same with um, like IT band syndrome, uh, 1975, I think was it was first described. So again, kind of like maybe not perfectly lined up, but how many years would some of this stuff take? Right. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, yeah, I don't. Do you want to interject a little? Because then that's that's before yeah. the minimalist footwear comes into the market. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, it, it is an interesting history, and part of it that I find so curious is at what point in time did whoever, maybe it was the manufacturers of the shoes, likely due to fashion, decide that narrow was the proper way to go and heel lift was healthy. And my understanding of the history behind it is these were relatively arbitrary decisions. They certainly absolutely were not based on physiology. They certainly were not based on our history. Because if you all look around the world, not many people were wearing shoes back in the the late 1800s. I mean, the same type of shoes we have today. Protection, though, like that's been a thing for a long time. So that part of the history I always find fascinating. And it's questioning that. It's it's questioning if we were meant to have shoes or have a heel lift, and if we were meant, evolutionarily speaking, to have these narrow feet, wouldn't evolution have given us a two-inch fat pad on our heel? Wouldn't have evolution given us these super... But it didn't. It gave us... You look around anthropologically at a natural foot... It's it's flat. Most of them are very flat. There's an arch, certainly, but relatively minimal arch, super wide forefoot. So that transition, and I believe from my understanding that it is based around fashion and style, to a narrow foot is better looking. And then that just became standard with footwear. And then as we developed into to running shoes, the same trend followed running shoes. And nobody ever questioned it, which is unfortunate because it led to all these things. But then, of course, fast forward a little bit, and then people started to question it, right? And that's when we start to get the the introduction of the minimalist footwear. Uh, and when did that start? So, uh, backtracking a little bit, mm. I totally agree. I think a lot of that stems from, like, um, 
Chinese like foot wrapping too, mm-hmm. and like that beauty standard of like the smaller the foot for some reason, and I think that kind of maybe cross seas a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. But as well as you're you're 100 right that like tapering, I think manufacturing standpoints easier to make as well, mm-hmm. being more symmetrical. Right? right, a lot of people think it's easier to make these minimalist footwear, but that non-symmetrical foot shape is actually more difficult than and the machine than just symmetrical tapered mm-hmm. sort of a thing. Yeah, so I remember my first pair of. Of minimal runners. So there's a company, Earthrunner. You probably heard of them, right? Love and, them. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. Um, I I was interested in Earthrunner, like right at the very beginning. I heard about them, and they didn't mass manufacture them. You actually had to send a footprint, and they would custom make your sand. I still have those sandals. They're like ten years old, maybe even more. And I thought, man, they are my absolute favorite thing to put on the bottom of my foot. And you're right. It's it's not easy to make a a sole of a shoe that actually works for the human foot as i said it's complicated so carry on sorry to interrupt there uh, the thing i love about earth runners is that heel strap because so many people think oh flip-flops are better than this but they don't have that heat they that no mm-hmm. heel strap it's horrible for your walking mm-hmm. uh but yeah earth runners are so good but yeah regardless um 2004 uh vibram develops the their five fingers uh globally in 2006 in 2006 they went global uh, in 2007, they were named Best Invention by Time Magazine. It was pretty mm-hmm. cool. So um, a lot of people will um, say it incorrectly. It is Vibram. A lot yeah. of people say Vibram. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I pretend it's a pet peeve of mine. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> but uh, a lot of the times, uh, it, it, the the founder of the company, his name was uh, Vital Brahmani. Uh, so okay, uh, hence the name sense. Vibram, I mm-hmm. think a lot of people will say, is... Uh, so yeah, they started marketing them originally as like a, a yacht shoe. So you can still have that grip, but still kind of have that barefoot feeling kind of of the grip on the deck of your yacht sort of a thing. So they originally kind of started doing it as that. I think hence their KSO model. I'm not, per- I don't personally have very many of these because they don't fit my foot very good. Unfortunately, my forefoot's too wide, but uh, their KSO model literally stands for like keep stuff out to my knowledge. So I think it's kind of like four on the shore and things trying to keep uh, shoes out and things like that. Rocks, sorry, rocks out. Uh, so, yeah, they started originally doing that. Uh, they started kind of making more and more. Uh, it was actually someone else. Uh, what was his name? I forget. But, yeah, someone else kind of brought it, uh, the idea of these, like, five fingers to uh, Vital Bramali's uh, grandson who was the founder or like the the guy in charge at that mm-hmm. point so he kind of pitched the idea and at that point in time it was literally just like a five finger sock with like rubber on the bottom mm-hmm. but like hey i think we have a market here um that guy is um, pretty much quoted with saying uh he wanted to go barefoot in a protected way that protection aspect of watching making sure you don't get cut or anything because uh when you can really sense the surface under your foot, your body's able to do what is designed for by nature. Mm-hmm. And it's like so, so true. Yeah. You know, that protection part, I want to, I want to dwell on a little bit because there, there's like everything, there's controversy, you know, like there's different opinions. I, for one land on the, I'm all for that protection. Uh, I, I went was barefoot as often as possible. And until one time I was in Thailand going barefoot, cut the bottom of my foot. And I'm like, I'm probably going to die from this. Out of commission. Like, yeah. Like who knows what's going to be getting in there. Uh, so I think it's super cool that we can still maintain having good grip, having that natural foot alignment and at the same time be protected from either sharp objects or, or even weather. Like, I mean, minus 30, uh, I'm not, I'm not wearing my middle. I'm not doing, I'm not wearing my middle. 
balls. It's not happening. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, th- I think it's pretty cool that we can still get these effects and simultaneously protect the bottom of our foot because that sucks. It is. It does. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's great until, like, I w- I've experimented doing some actual barefoot runs, too. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. It's one of the best films in the world until I nicked my big toe on a tree root. Totally. And then you kind of need, it's like, oh, hey, Dad, can you come pick me up real quick? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, was so, yeah, it was just so funny. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's great until, unfortunately, something like that happens. Mm-hmm. So if you can get the as close to a barefoot feel as you can and not cut yourself accidentally, yeah. golden. Uh, so what eventually kind of sparked popularity was uh, Chris McDougall's Born to Run. Yeah. 2009, it comes out and mm-hmm. uh, boom, all over, almost overnight, yep. these things are everywhere. You see people wearing these, uh, the, the five finger models, so each toe. Some people are appalled by the look and even me, before I got into these, I was kind of like, what are you wearing? Like, what it's is that? It's not even getting in a smell. Like, <laughs> Uh, oh yeah you just throw them in the washing machine after (laughs) people say yeah so it is pretty funny but yeah they spiked it was crazy Mm -hmm. and basically the book kind of uh goes around the tarahumara tarahumara i think yeah Uh, basically an indigenous tribe in mexico yeah it was a while since i've read it but man was it a good book i see why so many people kind of got behind it have you read a second book natural born heroes Oh, it's amazing because that—that's basically all about the fascial system. Interesting. Yeah, even interviews Tom Myers in, and he goes to Crete. Wow. It's like it's a really good read. Got to put on my to-do list. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, so that really kind of sparked the popularity of it more or less, and then and then from there, I don't have much else. It's pretty much uh, the other minimalist shoes started popping up. Vivo Barefoot, mm-hmm. I kind of refer to as the Nike of minimalist footwear. Which is pretty good, but again, they're getting pretty high up there too. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like, yeah, they're uh, the, some of their shoes are getting narrower and narrower. It seems, which again, for me, I have such a large forefoot. For some people, they're still fantastic, but uh, yeah, I have a very mm-hmm. uh, strange foot to try and shoe. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, do you think there's a time and a place for not wearing minimal? More, the more of the question I get is, yeah, orthotics along the same, that point too. Mm. So for me, I really like, so you mentioned in the winter, mm-hmm. I don't have these particular models, but Vivo Barefoot does have kind of like a, a leather, or it actually might not be real leather, I forget, but they have kind of like a, what they would describe as either a hiking boot or a winter boot, but then they put kind of the... Uh, forgive me, I don't know the name of it, but it's kind of like the same stuff astronauts would wear to keep warm, sort mm-hmm. of. It's like that thermal conductor sort of a thing. So it tries to keep the warmth in. Mm-hmm. So because of, you're right, you're right on the ground, maybe a little bit more padding in those hiking boot models. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of that, you'll get cold. So that was their solution. And to my knowledge, I don't know, depending on what you're doing. So if you're an avid hiker and you're out in the cold a lot, maybe you still might need more. Uh, so yeah, to me, the question of not normal shoe or when should you wear normal shoes or where should you wear orthotics to that degree? I don't really have too big of an answer. One of the things that is obvious to me is pregnancy, uh, and the relaxing hormone, how, uh, it affects everything in the body. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the time the arches kind of will drop. So just that temporarily, uh, but again, the way I like describing this is orthotics and kind of normal shoes to that degree are a crutch. Mm-hmm. get to the finish line get past that point do yeah. not rely on them so like after pregnancy ends and you're uh, starting to become a little bit uh 
bounce back from it is try mm-hmm. to wean off them again try and introduce some of the naturally go barefoot around the house or like yep. whatever is the best option for you mm-hmm. uh so yeah that's usually one of the number one things i tell people uh, of course there's maybe some other things like the hiking example and stuff but mm-hmm. that was one of the best ones where it's like okay yeah maybe temporary orthotics with something like that yeah. maybe but it's not for everyone you know when i'm when i'm going for a big hike and i'm wearing a 60 pound back uh, backpack I, I want my hikers on like it, it's not worth the risk when you're carrying that kind of weight in Agreed. my experience. Even so, like my, my, my hikers are made by Mammut and they're super wide. I got a wide four foot too, right? Super wide. So you can still do your best. You said there are those four characteristics of a minimal footwear, right? Uh, what is it? It's WTFF. So they're wide, they're thin. Yeah. They're FF. Give me the the flexible, flexible, flexible and flat. Right. So I think, you know, like with, with hiking boots, I get the wide, that's fine. I think that's enough. If you can, probably one of the most important ones. I I agree completely though. That toe splay in my experience, having healed from my ankle injury. And although I can do minimal, quite frankly, if I'm doing anything longer than a 5k run, I can't do it. I'm just in, in like mind blowing pain. If I put the right shoe, which hits a couple of those four characteristics, I can do 20K, right? So I think there is a time and a place, and I've experienced that in myself and with many of my patients. I actually had this one guy come in, and uh, I took him through the ankle protocol. Remember the, the AAT course? That, mm-hmm. Yeah. I took him through that ankle protocol. Um, he was born with a neurological dysfunction. It, it's pretty tragic where essentially all of his uh, connective tissue tightens up. And it, the reason it's tragic is because that's probably going to be the thing that kills him before he's 40. Um, anyways, we, we went through this, this streamer protocol, which was great, but afterwards still, we had to be mindful of his footwear because of these extenuating circumstances. So time and a place certainly, but they are rare. They're few and far between. And like you said, I think regardless of the situation, the end goal should be to have a natural foot that's capable of wearing natural footwear. You move towards that until you hit the limit of what your body can do. If there's an injury, I think that limit is going to be distinguishable by the amount of pain. Without an injury, I haven't actually found that limit. I haven't encountered anybody who doesn't have some sort of serious injury that can't eventually adapt to minimal footwear for virtually all aspects of their life, with the exception of, you know, winter and, you know, hiking, things like that, right? So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation to figure out, is there any room for for not being minimal? Another example is standing on hard floors. Like that's super hard if on it's a your long, job. Yeah, if you're standing there. All right, like I imagine somebody. I'll go to like Home Depot or something like that and see somebody who's probably been standing in that same spot for four hours. You know, and I get this question all the time when I teach about ankle stuff. What's what's the best footwear? Right? What's your answer to the best footwear? I'm for basketball. What kind of shoes do you wear for basketball? <laughs> tennis, tennis shoes. I get, I get. Uh, okay, let's let's say minimal footwear. Fine. But my answer is Crocs. Love them. Yeah. Love Crocs. Again, time and a place. You're on your feet on a hard floor all day. It turns out evolutionarily, we weren't, our foot wasn't actually designed for that. So if you are stuck in these situations, Crocs are fantastic, totally. right? They don't have that big of a drop. They got a wide toe box. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're nice and cushy, right? They're like breathe. clouds. They breathe. Yeah, they're fantastic little totally. things. Yeah. Yeah. For normal <laughs> shoes. And again, it's funny because I think we've gone full circle. I think Crocs are like so ironic now that uh, people are just kind of like, they, they used to make fun of the Crocs yeah. a lot too, but a lot of people uh, are, they're back in as some people <laughs> would say. Uh, yeah, I would totally agree. Uh, yeah, like it is so funny because ultimately with sports and all those things, why I joke, what's the best basketball shoe? Like a lot of people will ask this and it's like, 
you guys are missing the point mm -hmm. is these shoes are make they let your foot function how a foot's supposed to function it doesn't need all these fancy stuff to help you oh, bounce harder do this how's a foot supposed to function oh good that's a good question yeah what's that what's that about uh as cop out of an answer to sound naturally like <laughs> oh, as long as it could like again um what is it uh i keep botch uh i one thing i always say uh there's like four layers of muscle in the foot mm -hmm. 33 joints i believe yep. 26 bones mm, a so, third of the bones in the body a third like, exactly mm -hmm. like i mean the hands in that too but the thing that's different is our hands are able to move better. We can mm -hmm. adduct our fingers. We can do toes. It's a whole different story because we cram them in here. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time, <clears throat> if they're able to move the way they're supposed to, a lot of times, oh, like, oh, my feet smell. And there's this huge stigma about, like, oh, bare feet and things, like, online and all this. And, like, your feet wouldn't smell mm -hmm. if you didn't cram it in a sock and have them in a dark, moist environment for eight-plus hours a day totally. sort of thing. Yeah. So, and, and that usually comes down to one of the best advice I tell people is the longer you spend in something, the better. So, like, oh, what should you change then? Oh, for basketball shoes, doing all this. The longer you spend, that should, like, your everyday driver, that should be the best pair of natural or wide at least sort of a thing if you're able mm. to get away with crocs at work definitely but yeah how you can be doing uh oh yeah to, uh, what should a foot be doing mm. yeah i don't know like i said almost just like let it be uh, uh, uh we the human beings have you heard the we're more so human doings we just kind of yeah. do 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 it's just like let the foot be let it chill yeah <laughs> yeah when when i teach uh the the ankle workshop the first thing i i start about uh, is talking about that definition and the definition I've come to for, for how you can identify a healthy ankle and foot, it is capable of responding to any movement as opposed to creating movement. Mm. So like, let's, we could use the hand and arm. This creates movement, right? I reach out and I grab this thing. I can pour a cup of tea. But when it comes to the foot, the foot doesn't create movement. Even the gait cycle, it doesn't start with the foot. It starts with leaning forward. I mean, yeah, there's different theories on that. But for the large part, most people agree that the gait cycle begins with a shifting of body weight. And as soon as that happens, interestingly enough, even if you were to, to uh, put a paraplegic in a harness over top of a treadmill and get them to lean forward, even so, their legs still move in a semi-gate-like fashion. That reflex. Right, yeah. So we know that the gait cycle is largely reflex that occurs within the hips, a little bit less in the knees, and almost not at all within the ankle and foot. So it responds to movement, which means if I fall forward and my foot lands on the ground, my foot and ankle can adapt to the ground perfectly to maintain balance and stability. If I'm walking through the forest and I step on a rock or a root, a healthy natural foot, you're not going to roll your ankle, right? How many people have you seen in your practice that have chronic ankle sprains? And and it's like, well, well, what happened the last ankle sprain? And they're like, I don't know, I sneezed. Like, how, how did? Because their foot isn't healthy, meaning it can't respond, right? Is that idea? Yeah, yeah. That's that's I think a good definition. Agreed. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of the thing that popped into my head as you're explaining that is something I always like asking students too. Is I, I ask their, I challenge them, what is the difference between flexibility and mobility mm, that old question i know right and and a lot of people struggle with it but yeah to me it does come down to control within mm -hmm. that range mm -hmm. and uh that proprioception within these new ranges and i totally agree is uh, i it's not a hundred percent a promise but one thing i almost say is like i can almost guarantee you that if you make the switch and your feet adapt to these kind of minimalist natural footwear you will never experience an ankle sprain again mm. 
And it's, again, there's always that one-off sort of a thing. You never really know or if you're not completely adapted. But exactly, is when you can all, all now feel when you're running, you can feel that there's an un, um, uneven surface. Your ligaments pick that up. And you will adapt. You'll you'll form around that object mm-hmm. and instead of just like before you land on that two inches of padding, and then you're like, oh, yeah. Before you can feel what's happening, lateral ankle sprain. Well, it's like I always say, it's a cast, right? You're putting your foot in a cast, and just like any cast for any period of time, you're in a typical cast six weeks. You're going to lose about two to five percent of your muscle size. Strength is a different discussion per week. That's significant. Like that's huge, right? Now we consider you put your foot in a cast since the moment you can first stand. That's your whole life. Those muscles and ligaments and tendons, everything is so atrophied. I think part of the reason I managed to successfully recover from my my ankle injury the way I did is because of the previous seven years of my life being minimal footwear. Like that ankle injury obliterated every ligament in my ankle. But due to the fact that they were so robust, they healed stronger than average, right? Mm-hmm. So using it, you, you have to use these things. And I think I think your statement is is bold, but likely true. Likely, I mean, hard to say, right? Who's going to run that experiment? Exactly. But but something worth certainly considering. Mm-hmm. And there's always fluke accidents. You never really know. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many other. When you kind of get into this loophole of then then there's like the plantar fasciitis aspect and things right. too, which I typically t- like to refer to more as plantar fasciosis. I don't know if you've it's exactly that what it is. Yeah. 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 So that's a whole other thing we could talk about, but yeah, uh, basically, uh, I forget this name, but there were some experiments done about like taking uh, tissue samples of that plantar fascia and people with plantar fasciitis, and they instead of finding inflammation from mm-hmm. itis, they found like dead tissue, like yeah. necrotic dead tissue. Yeah. So hence, like fasciosis, there's not really swelling, but then how everywhere else and relating to Tom Myers and that's what makes me so interested about that book is when you do have that heel lift then your your triceps right your gastrocs are more shortened Mm -hmm. and then everything goes up the chain like i said that small pebble will throw off a wagon Mm -hmm. so you might not think of it but uh, because then that's what some people will say as well is oh stiletto's gotta be worse than just my nikes right it's like, mm, is it hard to say? Right? You know, it yeah, exactly. it's just maybe a little bit. Those that little heel was. Mm-hmm. Um, I was feeling in my back during that night, sort yeah. of a thing, right? But that's exactly it. Is uh, and why stilettos are a thing mm-hmm. is um, from that uh, female standpoint, at least, um, like sexual desire. When you stand like that, you're not just gonna like fall forward because all of a sudden now you have to like lean back. Mm-hmm. And when you lean back, that lumbar lordosis accentuates, yep. and then the hips drop into that anterior pelvic tilt, and everything starts happening. Totally, and the, the gastrocnemius there they're contracting, so you get that like nice looking lower leg, right? And the quads are engaged, and exactly. Mm-hmm. Hence that transition period too. You're calves aren't used to being on the ground Mm -hmm. they've been chronically shortened a lot of the time so then you go running when they are on the ground and of course there's a break-in period Mm -hmm. i would say yeah i remember my first run in my my minimal footwear i did the thing i did the thing that everybody does right it's like i'm i'm doing this i'm gonna go for this run i'm I'm 100 good old christopher mcdougall mcdouglas yeah yeah, either way, uh, throw them on. I did like a 3K. I didn't walk for like a week. It was brutal. It was brutal. I always joke, don't do calf day at the gym. Just run in minimals footwear. Yeah, like, for like 100 meters. Yeah. Like that's it. That's all it takes. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting world, this whole ankle and foot thing. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different, like as we went through this discussion, there's so many different branches that we could take within the discussion, one that can go on and on and on and on. Um, when you see clients... Now, who've got ankle and foot dysfunction, 
sure with the transition into minimal footwear you probably have that discussion right we've been through that enough but what do you do to help treat um it will depend like i said rooting back to our first conversation is like what's their attitude towards it what are they with because of course i need to be realistic uh, like talking to myself, Jason, not everyone's going to ditch their entire shoe wardrobe. It's like a lot of your problems would go away if you did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vivo Barefoot did a study, and what they found is if you just switch footwear, mm. is if you just go into these minimal shoes, what they said is within six months, your foot intrinsic muscles, will uh, their strength will increase by 60%. 60% in six months. J- not doing strengthening so again we, we a lot of the times get into our therapeutic exercise right oh do this the towel exercise and stuff they're great for the most part but like i said just switching shoes mm-hmm. me and my my feet getting warm on these walks if you just use those muscles they'll get better on their own not doing many um like therapeutic exercise wise yeah. so again getting a feel for are they willing to buy is money an issue can they not afford these right now mm-hmm. so uh, you really gotta so let's say let's say I, I come to see you i'm your ideal client there's no obstacles and i'm i'm sold right you, you've had the foot conversation with me you instructed your client to listen to this episode right they're they're in right so i'm your client now i'm in give me the steps like what do i need to do i've been wearing nikes my whole life uh dress shoes what do i do a lot of people will approach me and say yeah tell me about shoes like what shoe should i get i'm interested step one is learning european sizing i would say Honestly, a lot of them, there's like earth runners are American, uh, Vibram, I, th- I think it's more Italian. Uh, there's a few soft star shoes. They're American. A lot are European companies though, and they use EU sizing. So a lot of people are like, Hmm, I'm a little confused. So that's why I kind of started my YouTube channel to start showing them what I do is I start by kind of outlining my foot and here's my foot measurements. And if yours are anything similar, or if they're a bit off, can you still kind of tailor that into a, hmm, you know what, I'll up a size or I'll go down a size still. Because you can't just go to a store and try these on is the harsh reality, unfortunately. As much as I love that, and it's a kind of a goal of mine to open more stores here that would would have shoes like that to try on, is understand the new type of sizing, what will fit your foot. Then let's say, okay, great, you got them now. They, they came in the mail. Is breaking them in, if they're leather especially, if they're more vegan or not. Uh, you don't really need that shoe break in period, but you do need that break in period of walking in them and seeing how different it is, how different your body is. And again, it is unfortunately that rabbit hole I keep mentioning because for me, at least when I felt this, I made my own decision to, no one told me, Hey, you should probably ditch all your shoes. These are better. I kind of came to that conclusion. It's like, I'm not wearing any of my old shoes. Like, it's just like these, these don't feel good. And if I can, I'll be wearing these depending on your job and a lot of other things. Cause then that'd be the next thing. And a lot of our home care routines is, well, if you know that person's job is causing them this posture that is causing this pain, you can't just tell someone to quit their job. I may, it might be best for them, but you can't always just do that. So yeah, a lot of making them come to these conclusions. Yeah. Feel it. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. Just be careful. Don't overdo it because the worst thing you can do is scare them off from it, from injury mm-hmm. as if they accidentally got it. Um, uh, a calf injury or this or that. I even got a little bit of an injury when I was running so much in them for the first time, mm-hmm. but that was a, it's a common thing in barefoot runners. Mm-hmm. It's not, not everyone would have heard of it. It's very strange, that condition, but yeah, in a nutshell. Okay. Seems simple enough, right? So you'd think step one, get your shoe size. Step two, order the shoes that you want. 
Uh, what we can do too is we don't need to talk about it necessarily right now, but we'll put some links in the show notes to the brands that you would suggest looking into, right? Okay. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Foot Collective, so uh, we'll put that one in there as well. Uh, so they, they've done the shoe size, they pick the shoes, shoes are in, great. Next step is wear them. Uh, what would you say a timeline? Like what's a good protocol? Like how many minutes, hours per day to start with? That to me depends heavily on the shoes they're wearing and orthotics. Mm. Like if they've like l- let's say they've been wearing orthotics for years is baby baby steps no pun intended is like just put them on walk around the house yeah go up and down the stairs Great. a few times see, see what it, um if that's too much like I, I like I've I've treated some people who were a little bit older and um I think like Morton's neuroma like not necessarily the uh uh, from wearing too tight of footwear, it was more so the like born with tumor there mm-hmm. sort of thing. So uh, with Morton's neuroma, and uh, she's never walked properly. Uh, she always needs these external things and kind of like always kind of limps around. Has always had foot problems. Mm-hmm. And then came and saw me and, okay, sorry, this sounds kind of a little braggy, but yeah, like, oh, I, I'm a massage and she walked just without her insoles or anything. She just walked across the, the clinic to come and pay at the reception. She's like, oh, the, uh, uh, what's happening? Oh, my, it was insane. So, um, yeah, but again, temporary, temporary. Mm-hmm. So, so again, but then she was kind of like, oh, interesting. So then what I would tell people is from there to start unshoeing your foot a little bit as well is mm-hmm. what I call. And that could be things like toe spreaders, yep. <clears throat> uh, something I like to call toga, just moving your to- toe yoga, moving your toes mm-hmm. around in a oh, certain way, toga. trying to get blood flow uh, is remarkable. There's thermography imaging of blood flow to the feet wearing toe spacers and how much more blood goes there just from wearing toe spacers cool. is remarkable. So, I mean, j- just like that. So even if you aren't willing to make the shift from those shoes or if you don't have very many, you have to wear normal shoes still still wear still unshoeing your foot just to be healthy still so you don't accumulate these problems if someone hasn't been heavily or thought as like uh someone who maybe hasn't had much injury it is like a, yeah definitely go on a walk you're not at much risk mm-hmm. go on a little bit of a walk whatever you're used to though right kind of atomic habits or like small habits sort of a thing maybe if you even would walk a kilometer normally do half a kilometer like just see don't overdo it sort of thing ease into it like I said, everyone's different. It's mm-hmm. hard to answer. Yeah, hard to give an exact protocol. But I think the moral of the story is start slow. Low and slow, man. You start with these tiny baby steps, like you said, right? Move up. When when I talk about the, the appropriate protocol, it's figure out what you think you can do. Half that, start there. So if, if you're like, yeah, I could, do, I could do a kilometer, start with 500 meters. And if you can do 500 meters, then you add 100 meters until it hurts. And once it hurts, you back off a little bit, stick at that distance for a week, and then the next week, you bump it up again. And the point for, for myself that I found ideal is when I say hurt, it's like mild discomfort because you're moving into it so slow. And uh, at the start of each week, you want to figure out that discomfort point, back up a little bit, and then stay at that spot for a week. And then you see what I mean? Until gradually you increase the, the duration that you can wear these things. You know? I love how you brought that up because something else that I really like is that pain. Uh, so many people, like you said, I, I, I'm hugely invested in the sick care system, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually reading, I just finished a book on the placebo effect and, uh, you are the placebo Joe Dispenza. Joe Dispenza. Yeah. So Quality book. <laughs> uh, like I said, uh, it was kind of one of those, let's put that down and digest that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that he says really hit me and, uh, he says, uh, does a doctor's diagnosis become the modern day equivalent of a voodoo curse? Mm-hmm. And some of the experiments that he listed in there, I highly recommend reading it. It's crazy hearing about like, what's like, this is real. This is real life at yeah. these things. 
But it's so true as so many people, oh, I was diagnosed with plantar fascia. That's me now. Mm-hmm. I'm not just Jason. I'm Jason with plantar fasciitis. Yeah. And they, they, they really accumulate this. And it's kind of dangerous with ethics on the line, especially with when should you be using the placebo effect? Will it benefit someone? Will it? Is it just blatant lying to someone? Mm-hmm. So there's that thin ethical line, I would say. Totally. But 100% is a lot of people don't just accept. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I guess so. That, that I have that condition now. But yeah, they totally adopt it, and it's a shame. But uh, that's where I think a lot of maybe the chronic illness and stuff may come from as well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people just throw medication at the problem. Anti-inflammatories, hundred percent. And like I said, we've forgotten how to use pain as a signal. As a yes, get to that point just before back off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Use that the pain's telling us something. Yeah. It's not just a oh yeah, painkillers and keep walking in these shoes. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, it's a shame. And it's distinguishing between pain and discomfort. And I think because we live such a comfortable life, uh, I mean we all do. If you're in this north if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably living a pretty comfortable life if you can afford the time to do so, right? Totally. That we're not used to discomfort. So many people will believe discomfort is pain. But of course there's a big difference. And it turns out discomfort in almost every variety is healthful like it it really is a beneficial thing to experience a variety of discomforts so that's a conversation i have with my clients a lot even when they're on the table and i'm you know doing some trigger point work or acupressure it's like that feeling you're feeling right now i'm not pressing enough to cause you pain like i I know this they're like it hurts and it's like well let's reevaluate that and understand that that's likely discomfort of course there's a lot of conversation in that but in the process of rehabilitation, and this is be it ankle, be it neck, it doesn't matter anywhere in the body. It is, again, noting the difference between that, that discomfort point, that's rehabilitative, and the pain point. Yeah, that's So true. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it kind of stems and comes down to what are you almost willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up? What are you? How many kilometers are you willing to go? How much money are you willing to spend? Because <clears throat> depending on how you answer those questions... That will just be a, do you just make that simple change? Mm -hmm. Do you just switch your shoes? Or do you try unshoeing your foot as I call it? Do you try doing this? And then I think that's where something valuable, like a foot and ankle workshop coming to play, whether it's for the public or practitioners alike, Mm -hmm. is learning um, us as practitioners, learning how the anatomy works and all that versus just um, Joe Public, who is, how can I unshoe my foot then? Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more of a conversation. It's like, okay, I'll I'll show you some things. Let's do a workshop. And that's kind of where my future's kind of headed, I think, right now. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that about what you're doing is, is, I mean, my scope of practice is largely teaching practitioners, but man, I I so value this mentality that you have of teaching the general public. I mean, I I checked out, you've got a workshop coming up, right? uh, Like later this month, isn't it? 25th, 26th? Um, I'm doing a public lecture in mid-March, March March 17th, I think. Yeah, Yeah, so you got one coming up that's just for the public, teaching them foot and ankle health. That's, That's so important because if we could just teach them prior to the point where they have an injury, we see so many less injuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I seriously admire that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's different. And I do like the aspect of, yeah, some people who know some of this, some who, who know some anatomy mm-hmm. versus ground zero. I want to kind of make that improvement. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Super cool. Well, I feel like we're kind of, we're wrapping things up now. So before we do, do you have anything else you want to add? Any point you want to? Oh man, it could be endless. So, uh, like I said, uh, talking with fellow uh, body nerds and stuff, right? Yeah. We can start one thing and go for another 45 plus. Totally. So on the topic of shoes and stuff, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's a good natural stopping point more mm-hmm. or less. Cool. Cool. All right. So with that being said, uh, how can people get a hold of you? How can people follow what you do? Um, if you have any resources that you like, what's just your 
whatever basic contact info. We'll, of course, put all of this in the show notes as well. I technically haven't made like a business Instagram account yet, so you can just follow me on my uh, current account, JasonAG123, no spaces. Uh, and for our YouTube, uh, it's called Guy It's Guide. G-U-Y-E-T-T apostrophe S. Cool. And that's where I kind of review some of my shoes and do more of the uh, public things right now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this conversation sounds like it requires a part two, so maybe we'll uh, we'll wrap it up and we'll we'll do that a little bit later on. Thanks again. Looking forward to it. Cool.